ask questions, what's the why, be curious, and really like that beginner's mind where you're looking at what people are doing like as if you've never seen it before. Welcome to Making Hybrid Work, the podcast that explores the stories, successes, and stumbles surrounding the new flexible world of hybrid work, from technology to organizational culture. I'm Matt Eastwood, Senior VP at IDC, the premier global market intelligence firm. And I'm Amy Loomis, VP of Research, Future of Work at IDC. In this three-part first season, we'll be sitting down with experts to talk about how data, automation, and AI are helping to inform, measure, and deliver elevated employee and customer experiences. And with that, let's get going. Okay, so we've had this once-in-a-generation transformative event. And today, we want to talk about something that gets lost among all the data, reporting tools, and technology. And it's ironic, since these systems are designed by humans for humans. It's people doing the hiring and people doing the jobs. That's right. Today, we're talking about the human side of hybrid work. So before we introduce our guests, Amy, I wanted to ask you, what are we seeing from a high level, from the human perspective, now that we're a few years into this flexible world of hybrid work? So it's fascinating that so much of the emphasis on work has been on automation, migration to the cloud, navigation of the technical landscape of workplaces and spaces. But in fact, the hardest thing has been to address the human issues, as you say. So for example, teaming across functions, geographies, and roles is consistently ranked as the top organizational challenge for senior leaders. And in addition, we have seen that technical skills are necessary, but they're insufficient. In order for work transformation to be successful, organizations need to focus on communication, collaboration, creativity, and critical thinking as much as cloud computing. That's fantastic, Amy, and it's encouraging. And it's the reason that we brought on Sarah B. Nelson as our next guest. She's been focusing on the intersection of design, research, and technology for more than 25 years. In her current role as Chief Design Officer and Distinguished Designer at Kindrel, Sarah oversees Kindrel Vital, the designer-led open and collaborative co-creation experience that helps customers and alliance partners solve their business challenge and create groundbreaking technology platforms. Prior to Kindrel, Sarah held design leadership roles at Fortune 100 companies, including PepsiCo and IBM. She also worked with clients including Nike, Walmart Labs, Zappos, Vanguard, Flickr, and Skype. We're absolutely thrilled to have her with us here today. So to get this started, Sarah, thank you for joining Amy and I for today's podcast. Hi, Amy. Hi, Matt. I'm excited to have this conversation with you today. I can't wait. I'm going to direct the first question over to you, Sarah. Can you share a bit from your work experience about the value of developing an ear and an eye for human experiences? You know, why does this matter especially as we continue to experiment with hybrid models of work. So I love that you ask about developing an ear and an eye for experiences, because I think that's, this is a lot of what we do in design, but I think this is something that everyone can get good at, which is really about curiosity, listening and asking questions and also observing. So it's not only about talking to people, but really like how can you get deeply in to get to know human beings. But if I even step back a little bit from that, what's the why behind all of that? You know, any anything that we design, whether that's an organization or some kind of a, an app or a meeting, <laughs> even all of those things, like you can design, quote unquote, design like the perfect 
thing. But nothing survives the people. <laughs> the people don't want what it is. They can't relate to what it is. It isn't relevant or it's difficult. They will reject it or they will fumble with it. So it behooves you to really understand people and behavior and how they relate to whatever it is you're trying to do in order to make your work more successful. Because I mean, even when I think about technology, that there is no technology without people involved in it. I know that there's a lot of things that can kind of run on their own, but everything has an impact. Um, and also on society and the planet. So it, you know, building that muscle of curiosity, um, again, both in looking and listening, I think is just a central skill that everyone should have. In context of hybrid work, I think, I think this is really interesting because there's a lot of complexity of context that has arisen because of hybrid work. So we're no longer thinking about office only. We actually have all of these different space, when I say context, like spatial context or cognitive context, social, emotional context that people are existing in. And then how do we actually bring all that together so that people can work effectively? So in terms of understanding how people work, it is about understanding work modes, but it's about understanding that context and just being constantly curious about what that experience is. And you're going to hear me come back to it over and over and over again. It's like, ask questions. What's the why? Be curious. And really like that beginner's mind where you're looking at what people are doing, like as if you've never seen it before. And Amy, I know you're nodding as, as you listen to Sarah here. So what are you seeing in the way that organizations are using cross-functional collaboration to tap into creativity and expertise as these, these companies face a more dynamic and distributed workforce? And you know, how does this support really a diversity of perspectives in the workplace? Yeah, and I want to start by going back to that curiosity question and the why this matters so much, because when we surveyed the leading uh, employers and employees who were thinking about these things and we asked them, you know, what's driving you? What is making you want to do this transformation? And the improved employee experience for North America, at least, came up as the number one thing. So, you know, you've seen so much of business go towards the customer experience as being the Uber Alice of why we're here, why we do the work we do. And this year, for the first time, we saw that the improved employee experience came first, at least in North America. Now, why that matters is because we're starting to see an increasing link between them. And you said, well, how does this affect our cross-functional relationships? How does this affect the way that we work together? And I think that goes again back to what Sarah was saying. It's not simply that we have the technology to make good employee experience and there we go. It's got to be from their point of view. It's got to be that you look at that user journey. And I think that was a big mistake at the, the outset of the pandemic. And then we had pandemic redux where, you know, people thought that you could just order everyone back into the office. And we've even recently seen that that doesn't work. So how do you fix it? You fix it with these cross-functional collaboration that's all about how do we make that experience for the employee 
be as seamless as possible. So it's your CHRO working hand in hand with the CIO to make sure that they have a good understanding of what a day in the life of that employee is. What are the integrations that they need? And then in turn, those two are also collaborating with the COO to think about the way the building is set up. Does it take me forever to get from the parking lot into the lobby to get cleared to go up to my cube? Can I find my cube? Where the heck is my cube? Will my meeting be starting on time? Where's the conference room that it was shifted to? Those kinds of dynamics really matter because we're increasingly with that context of being in a more dynamic way of working, seeing that relationship between the employee experience and the customer experience. And so I think when we come together across these functions, it really makes uh, a much more diverse perspective, a much more holistic perspective, because we're thinking about it across disciplines and not just from one siloed point of view or another. That's a great way to set this conversation up. And I'd like to dig just a little bit deeper into design thinking and its role here. Can you each speak about how you see organizations building an intentional and a spontaneous culture as they move forward with these hybrid work models? And Sarah, let's start with you here on this one. So I want to I, I just also jump back just a tiny bit, very much related to this, uh, the relationship between employee experience and customer experience. And this also ties to design thinking. On my own personal professional journey, I really got interested in how people make together, how people are creative together, how can we help these internal teams become successful. And it's very almost like for a selfish reason, which is if we're going to make great user experiences what I call the start users have to be functional too. Like you have to also think about how you're building a creative environment. What are the methodologies and tools, the beliefs and the culture? All of that is going to show up in the customer experience that you designed in some way or another. The customer may not be able to articulate it, but they'll certainly be able to feel it. And actually, if you go way back to the beginning of the internet and of the web specifically, you used to see these sites For a company that would, the navigation at the top would say marketing, IT, (laughs) whatever product thing, like whatever product team, um, they were organized by the company org, which has nothing to do with how the customer would experience it. And so in design and design thinking, we had to go into those places and say like, hey, marketing, have you ever talked to IT before? Because they actually are doing something kind of how, you know, so we were in this like sewing together organizations. And so that's how really design thinking for me became like a really central tool. But addressing this thing about intentional and spontaneous, um, this is to me, this entire time period is very interesting because I actually used to struggle with the way that the offices worked a lot from a collaboration perspective. So this sort of, there was this belief that people were just like collaborative because they were next to each other or the, this whole water cooler idea, which I think is kind of overrated. You know, hey, how was your coffee? Oh, my coffee's hotter than normal. There's like this kind of banter that sort of builds relationships. But what's really much more interesting about that is that if you actually you see some work happening somewhere or you pass a conversation or someone asks you a question, that kind of spontaneity is to me is where the creativity really comes from. But the open offices didn't always really support that. And I think sometimes it kind of got us being really sloppy about it. And there was also, I I remember seeing some things about the increase in the use of like chat, Slack, IM in open offices rather than going over and talking to somebody. 
because there's so many distractions and it's hard to focus. So I'm not super sad to see the open offices go. And I thought about this sort of work from home Fridays thing too, which is not really about intention, more about a perk. It's nice to be at home on a Friday, but again, does it really take, what's the intention behind that? Maybe people can focus, but how can I really integrate focus and collaboration intentionally into a given week? So when I think about that intention, I, I used to talk about like, instead of work from home Fridays, what about intentional collaboration Tuesdays, where the team is actually all together and they have a, a plan and a, they've cleared their calendar so they just work with each other. Um, so it's terrible to say like, I mean, I feel like this is kind of a gift of the pandemic where it really forced the conversations about what does it really mean to collaborate and how do we not just go on automatic, but actually design that. Well, I loved how you laid that out and, and the history piece of it is so important here as we as we live this 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 transformation. Amy, I know you've got some things to add here. Yeah. About it. <laughs> and I've had the joy and privilege of leading uh, teams that were organized to support design thinking. And it's exactly as, as Sarah was saying, you know, we had to bring people into a focused environment, not have it be just in the wild as you were, you know, the wild open office. Um, and there were people who were on-prem side by side, and there were people who were virtual who are participating but I think a couple of those elements of design thinking really are important. Um, the first one was that we had the cross-functional team so that our developers were side-by-side -side with our web designers and they were side-by-side -side with our writers and they were side-by-side -side with the people who were doing the copy for marketing. And it all made for a interesting perspective on what the other person is doing. So you could have an empathetic understanding of how difficult or hard is it to code for this page is the thing that I've dreamed up, you know, wonderful in my head, but really impossible to do. And it's design thinking because we're doing it with the end user journey in mind. So again, it kind of pulls through that thread we were talking about before, but how do we collaboratively build that, that journey? The thing that's unique and I think really important is you combine that with some of the agile methodologies and practices, and you start to see that we rapidly iterate. So does this work? Does this work? And it's not just doing it in isolation of an echo chamber of the team talking to itself, but bringing in other people like sponsor users, people who represent that end user community that you're designing the experience for. Um, and I think that's sort of the third element of it is that we think about designing things initially. It's a, I built a website, right? Or I built a product or an app or whatever it is, as opposed to thinking about designing experiences. And that was a big shift when we started to use Agile, when we started to use uh, design thinking methodology, we were much more focused on what is the experience and what is it that we want people to be able to do after they've had that experience, rather than what is the thing that we are creating in sort of that old way of, of thinking that's more, you know, old mastery, if you will. Okay, so let's dig into this a little bit deeper and we'll touch on some of the kind of foundational components under all this. And we're going to go back and forth on this, but Amy, let's start with you here. Sure. So how do we even know that a company culture is changing? Yeah, and I think that there are a number of, um, how should we say, green flags, right? Um, I've spoken to many of our IDC buyer users, and the thing that seems to be the biggest indication that it's changing 
is people feel permission to express their requirements in a way that isn't just pure play solicited. So I've got a hybrid work environment. You know, the company wants to know where and how I'd like to work. Do they really want to know? Right. I mean, so one of the green flags is that that's not just performative. It's not just HR doing a survey, that there's a sense that that is really a fundamental interest and an honest curiosity, as Sarah was saying. The second one, I think, is the culture changes when the CEO alters the language they're using to talk about hybrid work, um, that it's not a perk, um, that it's part of the business strategy. And I think that makes a really big difference because much as we like to talk about grassroots ingenuity and people coming up with new ways of working that are creative and I didn't even know they were in the car and things like that, um, it ultimately has to be ensconced in a hierarchical policy that makes people feel like they have permission to be able to innovate, to be able to iterate, to be able to contribute. And so I think investing in technologies, but also in practices like there are CEOs that will spend two hours once a week with um, an open Q&A, things like that, where they're capturing real authentic concerns and questions. But then they in turn have to translate that to shifts in policies and experimentation and be willing to be wrong, be willing to say, we're going to try this. And if it doesn't work and that's not a failure on their part. Right. So if the culture hasn't shifted, then people will see, oh, the CEO is waffling, they don't know what they're doing, as opposed to, oh, the CEO is listening to us and thinking about our needs and we're evolving to meet the needs of the business. So I think that's a really good set of at least two green flags that I see. There are many more, but that just gets us started on that journey in conversation. We'll be right back with Sarah's response after this. This podcast is brought to you by Kindrel. Kindrel's Digital Workplace Global Practice provides end-to-end services from consulting to implementation, management, and support. We use the capabilities of market-leading technologies and co-create with you and our partners the best possible experiences. Learn more at kindrel.com slash digital workplace. That's K-Y-N-D-R-Y-L dot com slash digital dash workplace. Kindrel. Elevate your employee and customer experiences. Now back to our conversation. So Sarah, you have some some ideas here as well? So I'm putting on my good design researcher hat and I'm thinking about signals that, you know, often in design research, we look look for signals and evidence. Um, But how do you get inside of someone's head? I mean, you have to, I can only kind of guess what someone is thinking or feeling do my best to empathy, but there's also just the signals, the rituals, the practices. You know, if we think about tools, how are people using the tools? Are they using the tools? Like, how can we really understand? And I think probably use the data that all of these, a lot of these, like the digital workplace tools that they are throwing off in a huge amount of data. And how can we use that to actually understand behaviors that we're seeing? And then what do those then tell us about the culture change? So, I like to just think about things that are observational. And then we have to do a lot of discernment because, I mean, I agree, like you have to have a genuine top-down messaging that is then also carried through with, you know, sometimes talk about the frozen middle, but that is, you know, it's not just that person saying it, but you can see the way that 
you know, team leaders are also behaving. And I just take little things like, you know, how we use Teams or Zoom or whatever product that you're using, you know, are cameras on or off? And there's a whole, like, I'm not saying one is necessarily better than the other. There's kind of this, like, sometimes camera off is the right thing. Sometimes that's about someone maybe being under the weather. Is there an acceptance of that that person is still present, but doesn't need to, like, do their hair and everything to be like on, like we're all little television stations. Um, But I think that that's, you know, what are those behaviors that you're seeing amongst all the teams? And again, like how can we use data to really understand what that is and then bring that back to um, companies to be able to understand how they might use that and then continue to move those levers, those culture change levers. So I love that perspective. So Amy, I'm going to come back to you here, but yeah. let's talk a little bit about why traditional approaches to collaboration are not sufficient in this world. Yeah, I, I think it's because we've learned that there has to be uh, authenticity and more than just the technology to collaborate. I mean, it's really fascinating to me that you know we asked uh, in one of our recent surveys about what the biggest organizational challenges were for supporting hybrid workers and 44% said that it was enabling teams to work effectively together and then the second 44% um, said it was trusting employees to keep corporate resources and client data resources secure and then the last of the top 3 was trusting employees to accomplish work while working remotely And the reason that the traditional ways don't work is because they don't have a fundamental level of trust that can necessarily make the transition between simply having the tools and having the trust that people will do uh, what they need to do, that they will reach out to the people that they need to reach out to, that they will keep safe the things that they need to keep safe, whether it's IP or PII. And I think that that level of trust and support is what often is missing when you have very rigid cultures that simply say, do what you're told, don't offer suggestions, you know, here's what you can say, here's what you can't say, this is the script that you need to read to the customer, no more, no less. You know, when you give people a bit of autonomy, when you trust that they will know the right way to communicate, the right medium to communicate in, that's that's important. And as Sarah was saying, there's all of this data, this uh, digital exhaust off of which media people use for what types of communication. When are they asynchronous? When are they synchronous? And, and recognizing that in some cultures, it's going to be one way. In some cultures, it'll be another way. It might depend on the context entirely. But one thing that I know is that when we asked what organizations were doing to mitigate the concerns with all these employees that were departing because they didn't feel part of a culture, the number one thing was that they changed to remote and hybrid work policies. They invested in these communication tools and they increased use of automation so that people could focus on human things. So I think that that's an interesting shift that the old ways don't work because they don't work. They don't communicate with Uh, They don't enable the kind of authentic connection and communication that you need, especially when you're dealing with people not being in person. But even if you are dealing with people in person, you have to be very mindful of those things. So so let's let's probe a little bit here on, on this. So, Sarah, so what are some of your observations when we start to think about how we compare the transactional versus the intentional parts of how we we build out these cultures? 
I imagine it depends on the job. There are some jobs that I don't have as much familiarity with. Shout out to all the financial people out there. I know that your jobs are very different, probably looking at you probably don't want things to be like, let's explore and see how, you know, this works that you're probably like, no, actually compliance and things need to actually line up in the right kind of ways. And, but, but that said, I've often said too, like, even if you're in finance, that there are ways to really like, can you step back and think about something like how do people submit expense reports or is the expense report even the right way to go about it? Like there are ways that every person is kind of, there are things that we need to do, like that sort of transactional, I need an answer from you so I can move this thing forward, you know, or that these are some processes that we need. And there's also that like, how can we step back and think about it differently? Is there a so what behind your work? Cause you can be like incredibly, let's just say busy and active. And the thing you make doesn't go anywhere, but man, were you busy and active. So let's shift this a little bit from the self, the individual, and talk a little bit about team. So if we think about shifting from kind of a self-assessment to a team assessment, how does that play into all this, Sarah? One of the things I like to do is like you think about the team as a whole. Because you like the team as a whole, what are the outcomes that that team as a whole are getting to? And then you kind of assess like how is that team actually working together? So if there's a challenge, like what are the dynamics of that team? And it's it's usually not as simple as saying, well, there's this one person who's bringing everything down and we should move that person out. Or you can be very successful in one team environment and very unsuccessful in another one. And it doesn't mean that you're somehow a less capable person. It means that now you're in a different dynamic and we don't even know what the situation of that dynamic is. Is I think you bring up something that sparked a memory of a conversation I had recently where someone said, you know, we replaced so-and-so who left the organization. And this is helping, you know, this is happening all the time. There's a lot more churn in, especially because organizations that aren't offering hybrid alternatives or even those that do are expecting that expectancy of, of tenure is much shorter than it used to be. And what they said was, you know, we got a new person to replace Sarah, right? But it's not like it's another Sarah. It's somebody completely different. They aren't just their role. They're going to affect the chemistry of the team. And having a quote-unquote new Sarah is not what's happening. It's, it's a whole new team that's forming. And then the other thing I wanted to say is that we think about teams as being static, but they're also spontaneous teams. So, yes, I have this role on my team and I have that role on my team. But the question was, how do you do an assessment of how teams are doing? And it's how well they figured out the ways in which their roles can complement each other. The degree to which they have, you know, fluidity and transparency and ability to be honest with each other and evolve the way that the team works for different purposes or different outcomes and stick with the things that do work in a nice rhythm but also be willing to have that sort of spontaneous engagement with, say, people outside of the team for a particular part of the work that has to get done or a, you know, a, a team for a day, you know, to get these things to happen. And that allows, I think, for a much richer culture and a much better teaming experience. So this has been a really healthy exchange. I've really enjoyed every bit of this. And as we move to kind of wrap this up, just wondering if there's any final thoughts, if there's anything that either of you have, have left out that you just want to add into the conversation here. And I'll start first with Sarah. I just think this is a really exciting time. We have this black swan event that the world went through and it caused us to reassess so many things. And it, it's not an easy transition, like big transitions like this are not easy, but there's some real fruit 
I think that's going to come out of this as long as we stay open to what that might be. And so I'm very excited about the possibilities as we really rethink how work works. Yeah, and I would echo that, that it's just a really exciting time where we have permission to do things differently. We have permission to experiment. We have permission to look at new roles, new goals, and that establish an understanding of how we're working together internally and how that internal collaboration is having an impact on our external collaboration with clients so that those two things start to feed into one another. Well, fantastic. I'm First, I want to thank you, Sarah, for joining Amy and I today for the discussion. We very much appreciate your time, and we certainly appreciate your perspective. So thanks, Sarah, and thanks, everybody, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, Matt, it goes to show you, you can design whatever you want, but adoption will always come down to the user. And you have to keep that user in mind during every step of the design process. Companies that fail to do that well, they're going to have a tough time standing up enduring hybrid work programs. Agreed, Amy. And that includes how you position things, doesn't it? I loved it when Sarah said that hybrid work is not a perk. It's a strategy. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks to Sarah Nelson for her wonderful insights. In the next episode, we'll have Ron Xavier. He's Microsoft Center of Excellence leader for Kindrel's Digital Workspace Services Global Practice. And what's he going to be talking about, Matt? He's going to discuss how employee experiences are modern, meaningful, and measurable. And until then, I'm Matt Eastwood. And I'm Amy Loomis. We'll see you next episode of Making Hybrid Work. <laughs>